Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. In this episode of The Unmistakable Creative, the author of The Happiness Project and Better Than Before, Gretchen Rubin, joins us to share unconventional wisdom on happiness and habits. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? 
United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Gretchen, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to have this conversation. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. You know, I have known about your work for such a long time, you know, long before I ever started doing anything online. And somehow we have, you know, crossed paths numerous times, but never actually met until we finally did at Podcast Movement. So it is really, really cool to have you here. So uh, on that note, uh, for people in our audience who may not be familiar with your work and who you are, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, your story, your background, and how that has led you to everything that you're up to in the world today. <laughs> okay. Well, I was born in Kansas City, Missouri, um, and uh, I started out my career in law. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was actually clerking for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, um, which is a pretty cool job as law jobs go, um, when I realized I really wanted to be a writer. And so for more than 10 years now, I've been a professional writer. I'm best known for my book called The Happiness Project. And so my last three books, I wrote a biography of Kennedy and one of Churchill. My first book was called Power, Money, Fame, Sex, A User's Guide. That was a fun book to write. Um, but my last but uh, my last three books, uh, The Happiness Project, then Happier at Home, um, and my most recent book called Better Than Before, which is all about habit formation, have all been kind of in this area of human nature – um, how do we have? How do we make our lives happier, healthier, and more productive? You know, what can we do with our conscious thoughts and actions, and with things that are manageable and realistic? Not the ten-day silent meditation retreat, which might work for you, <laughs> but most of us can't do that. Um, but like manageable things you can do in your everyday life, and sort of the science of it, the philosophy of it. Um, I experiment on myself and the people around me. Um, and as part of that, one of my happiness guinea pigs certainly has, is my sister Elizabeth, um, and she appears in, in my books. Uh, and we just started a podcast um, like six months ago called Happier with Gretchen Rubin, where we talk about happiness and good habits and all that stuff. And because we're sisters, you know, we call each other out quite a bit <laughs> on the stuff we do. Um, I have a blog where I write, I, I mean, for like eight years, I've written, you know, five or six times a week on my blog about these issues, my sort of my adventures and happiness. Um, so I write books, I write on, online, I do a lot of social media stuff. Um, and now I have a podcast too. So um, it's great to have all these different ways to engage with people on the subject because I love hearing from other people. I'm sorry, I can't turn off my landline because no if I do, if I do it like won't connect again. So we're just going to have, you're just going to have to edit it out. I'm sorry about that. No problem. 
You know, one of the things I want to look at, at back and, and do is look back at the formative experiences of your life, uh, you know, prior to all of this starting, you know, even prior to law school, like when you were growing up, were there things, you know, that ultimately would lead you down this path of becoming a writer, like people, influences, experiences that ultimately would shape where you've ended up today? Well, you know, when I look back on my life, I see that I did everything that a person would do to prepare herself to be uh, a professional writer. Um, and I'm a person of very narrow interests. Like all I like to do basically is read and write. Um, so I'm not I don't have a wide range. And so I spent a huge amount of time um, uh, my whole life reading and also writing. You know, uh, I was an English major in college, then in law school, you write tons. I wrote a novel in, col in uh, law school. I wrote a novel after college, um, and they're terrible, safely locked in desk drawers, but it's still good for a writer to be doing these things. So I did a lot of things um, to prepare for writing, but, um, but, it was, but it took a long time for me to First of all, to acknowledge that I wanted to be a writer, and then also, truthfully, it was hard for me to see a pl my, my place in writing, because I thought of writers like you were either a novelist or a playwright or a poet or something like that, or you were a journalist, or you were an academic writer. Like, the idea of creative nonfiction, which right now is, like, everybody understands it, and there's all different kinds of ways that people sort of do different versions of creative nonfiction, it just wasn't a thing that I thought about. I didn't, under I didn't realize that that was the kind of writing that I wanted to do. Um, and once I realized that, um, then I was really able to see, uh, a path forward for myself for the kind of thing that I would do. So it took me a long time to understand kind of my thing. Okay. So you mentioned that it took you a long time to acknowledge that you wanted to be a writer and yeah. that, you know, I, I feel like this is such a common thing among people who have creative paths. Like they have this thing that is just burning inside of them wondering why you think it is that so many people fail to acknowledge it. And then, of course, you know, if they do, how do they learn to see what their place is and all of that? Well, that is a very good question. Um, because I think the flip side of it is also that just the desire to do it is not enough. Mm. I think there are a lot of people who have a burning desire to do something, but it never turns into anything. So what you need is a burning desire and the willingness to do the drudge work that goes along with it. Like what I see with writing is a lot of people are like, Oh, I love to write books, but I can't be bothered like to get an agent or figure out how to sell it. Or I'm like, well, that's part of being a writer. Like you don't get like in a way, writing a book is the easiest part because it's completely within your own control. But then you got it. Like, you no, know, even if you self publish, like you still got to get out there and like mess with other people. It, that's part of it. I mean, for most people, most people want to have their things go out into the world. So I think you have to acknowledge that, that that there's there's every job has a lot of different tasks related to it and sometimes you have to acknowledge that even if something doesn't come easily to you or doesn't seem like oh this is not what my passion is it may be something that you're going to have to acquire um now and why do people not acknowledge it like in my case i think the reason i didn't acknowledge it was Part, because I just didn't understand how I could do it. I was like, I had written a couple novels. They were terrible. I could not, I, I couldn't face the idea of being a journalist. To me, that just sounds like awful. I don't like anything <laughs> about that. I don't like deadlines. I don't like cold calling people. I don't like, ha I, I also like, and this came out in my biographies. I don't, I think it's very hard to present a truth. And so I get very uncomfortable when it's like, well, what's your version of events? I'm like, well, 
this is one version of events, but there's other versions of events that are just as legitimate. So I get like all tangled up in that. I didn't want to be an academic. Um, so I had to figure out, like, I had to figure out how, how to do it. And then, but I was lucky. I was really lucky for a couple reasons in terms of like acknowledging my passion and going, taking a risk. First, my sister, who's younger than I am, was already a professional writer. So I had a model of somebody in my, very close to me who was a professional writer. So that was very helpful. And also, even more so, I was really lucky because every important person in my life um, was like, this is great. You should do it. Um, and this is, includes my parents who, by the way, had just paid for law school. Mm -hmm. So here I am, I go to, I go to Yale law school. I'm editor in chief of the Yale law journal. I get this writing prize. I get this fancy clerkship. They've paid them my whole way. And in the middle of the clerkship, I'm like, and now, by the way, I want to start all over from zero. I have not a clip, not a short story, nothing. And they were like, that's great. You should do it. And my father said the most amazing thing to me. I was telling him I was going to do this. I was like, okay. And then at that point, I got an agent and I sold my proposal. And he said to me, you know, honey, you might not knock it out of the park the first time, but you'll get there. And I told that to a friend and they said, oh, that sounds really undermining to me. I was like, no, it wasn't because my father was like, whether or not your first book succeeds or fails is not whether or not you decide whether this was the right thing to do. Maybe you hit it out of the park the first time. Maybe you don't. Hmm. Um, but that still might be the right decision to have made. So I, you know, and I care what the people around me, I'm affected by what they think. So I think I was really lucky that they were so supportive. My husband left law the same time I did. We met in law school and I, we moved back to New York and at that time I quit law and like tried to get an agent and he quit law and got a job. He took like financial accounting at night at GW and then got a job at an investment bank. So we both switched together. So that was good too. You know, it was like, yeah, you know, we're going to do something different now. Hmm. So I was, I was, I was lucky in that the people around me supported me to take a risk. Okay, so lots of questions uh, from all that. Uh, the first one around this idea of uh, willingness. You know, you talked about people having the desire, but not everybody having the willingness. Yes. Do you think the willingness is something that we can develop and learn over time, or and you know? Do you think that there is something inherently built into certain people that separates the ones who have the willingness from the ones who don't? Okay. So this is an all-important question. And this was one of the things that haunted me when I was doing the research for my habits book. Mm -hmm. Because some people can just make themselves do stuff, and other people can't make themselves do stuff. And why is it that sometimes they can and sometimes they can't? And some people find it easy and some people find it hard. And they have all these different reasons. Oh, I can't put myself first. Oh, I sacrifice for others. Oh, I'm a people pleaser. Oh, I'm afraid to take risks. Oh, I'm so lazy. Um, oh, I'm going to do it tomorrow. You know, like all these things. And then some people, it's no problem. So they're like, I refuse. I only want to do it when the muse hits me. I'm never going to have a schedule. I don't want to have a boss. Like, what is going on, right? It turns out there is a very simple pattern to all of this. And I think, so when you say willingness, mm -hmm. I, would, I would put a whole different framework of vocabulary on it. So for, the, for my, my habits book, I came up with something called the four tendencies. And there's an, a quiz online on my site, GretchenRubin.com, if you want to take a quiz that will tell you what you are. But most people can tell from a brief description. And it, this is how you meet an expectation, an outer expectation like a work deadline or an inner expectation like I want to write a novel in my free time and get it published. So upholders are people like me. We readily meet outer and inner expectations alike. So we keep a work deadline. We can keep a New Year's resolution without much fuss. 
very few people are upholders, it turns out. I was shocked when I realized, like, I'm an, on, like, an extreme, freaky, fringe personality. Then there are questioners. Questioners question every, uh, all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. So they won't do anything arbitrary or rational or inefficient. Like, they're always like, why should I do this? And so they'll do it if they think it makes sense. So they make everything an inner expectation. Then there are people who are obligers. And I bet a lot of the people who talk about willingness fall into this category. And it's the biggest category. These are people for whom it's very easy to meet external expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. So let's say you're a person, you have a day job, you're working as a law clerk, and you, every day you have deadlines, and you have a boss, and you have colleagues, and everybody's like, where is that memo? And you're like, I will get it to you on time. But if you're writing a novel in your free time, or you're writing a book proposal where there's no one waiting for it, there's no one supervising you, there's nobody like calling you out on it, it's very hard to meet that inner expectation. It often feels like the outer expectation is keeping you from meeting the inner expectation. But here's the thing with obligers. Even if those outer expectations went away, the inner expectations would not be met. So obligers must have outer expectations for them to meet, for, even for an inner expectation. And I want to come back to that in a second. But finally, just to finish the framework, there's upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do when they want to do it in their own way. If you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. They don't even want to tell themselves what to do. So I have a friend who was writing a book, uh, a nonfiction, like a leadership book, who is a rebel. And he's like, and I said, oh, have you made a deal with your agent? Like, do you have a book contract? He's like, no, 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 no. If I had a deadline or an editor or anybody looking over my shoulder, it wouldn't be fun for me. I can only do it if it's what I want to do. If I was answerable to anybody, I would refuse to do it. So I'm like, well, there's a guy who knows himself and how to, get, how to make himself more efficient and creative because he knows. The thing about obligers is a lot of times so, – and this is the biggest tendency. So if you feel like, oh, my gosh, it seems really important to me to do this project or that project, and yet I, over and over I find myself not doing it, the key – the answer, the simple solution, is outer accountability. Work with a coach. Start in an accountability group of other people. I have a starter kit on my side if you want to start a group for people who hold each other accountable. You know, it's like Weight Watchers or AA. When you know you're going to have to show up and tell a bunch of people, did you do it? Did you not do it? Did you work on it? It makes it much easier. Um, you can figure out a way to get a client or to get a contract or to get an agent or somebody who's going to give you deadlines and supervision, someone you're answerable to. And for many people, that's what they need. They need somebody, you know, like NaNoWriMo. Mm -hmm. A lot of people who do that, it's like you, you, you get in groups, like they have meetups. It's like there's a sense of accountability. We're all like, I'm going to ask you if you wrote your 1,685 words or whatever it is. Um, and I'm gonna, and if you didn't, I'm going to be like, hey, you said you were going to. Are you going to make it up? Like, what's the plan? Um, for a lot of people, outer accountability can really help with that willingness. Because I think a lot of times people think that it's kind of some kind of inner psychic process that has to be kind of analyzed and solved. I'm like, eh, no, get a coach. Get, you know, get a contract, get, have an accountability partner who's going to like make fun of you if you don't do anything and you, you won't have a problem. And I've heard amazing stories from obligers of how they build in this external accountability, really ingenious solutions. Huh. Okay. So there's so much stuff here. I mean, it sounds like we could spend hours talking about this. <laughs> uh, I have a couple of questions, you know, I'm yeah. in the process of writing a book myself with a publisher. Ah. So, uh, it, you know, I, I am on the chapter that I, I call the bane of my existence or the bane of the entire book. It's been driving me insane because it's ah. a difficult chapter to write. It's about mastery uh, of a craft and how that relates to being unmistakable. 
But you know, there, there's two questions that come up for me as I've heard you've described this process. One, you know, when we know all these things that we do about success and habits and foundations, why is it that you think there's such a general lack of awareness about these kinds of things until somebody like you comes and shines a light on it? Because you know, they don't teach you this stuff. I went to Berkeley as an undergrad. No, nobody once sat me aside and said, you know, these are foundational skills for your future, which they clearly are. And then, you know, the other, uh, the second question is, what role does intrinsic motivation play in all Dude. of this? Well, intrinsic motivation makes everything easy, you know. Um, so it's really, it's really helpful. And I mean, I think that's why in a happy life, we can build a happy life only on the foundation of our own interests, our own values, our own temperament. And so the more you know yourself, the more your life reflects that, then the more easily things come to you. And I think one of the, there's many reasons that we don't talk about all this stuff. One of them, I think, is that there's such a strong impulse in people to offer and to seek magic one size fits all solutions. So like people are like, oh, I've got the answer for you. Do it first thing in the morning. Start small. Do it for 30 days. Give yourself a cheat day. Everything in moderation. Um, Yeah, those work for some people sometimes. They don't work for everybody all the time. Um, But I think, so I think really this idea is that that you have to think about what's true for you. Um, What are, you know, what am I like? How am I different from Benjamin Franklin or my sister-in-law or whoever else I might compare myself to? Um, What do I want? Uh, When do I succeed? When am I creative? When am I productive? Like, what do I need? Um, And if you look at the people who are really creative and productive, there's a fascinating book. I bet you've read it because it seems like it's right up your alley. The Mason Curry book, um, Daily Rituals. <laughs> Have you, you know that yeah, book? Yeah, absolutely. It's on my shelf. Yeah. I was yeah. looking at Love it yesterday. Book. So it's it's this like this catalog of like a like was it 143 outstanding people, choreographers, scientists, novelists, um, musicians of every kind, and he just goes through their days, and so you see what their habits are. And what you see is there is no pattern in the habits. Some people get up early. Some people get up late. Some people drink coffee. Some people drink booze. Some people live in tremendous noise and chaos and confusion and bustle. Other people live, you know, with like absolute simplicity and silence. But what you realize is that all of those people have figured out what do I need to succeed? And then they relentlessly make that happen. If they need chaos and bustle, they make sure they have chaos and bustle. If they need silence and simplicity, then they make sure they have that. If they need to go to bed early, they're in bed early. If they, can, if they want to stay up late and sleep till two, that's what they do. And so, but I think our impulse is to be like, oh, well, Steve Jobs ate only fruit. Therefore, I will eat only fruit or whatever. Uh-huh. And, um, but it's like, man, yeah, it might work for you, it might not work for you. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I, you know, I'm, there's one section in my book where I'm writing about this and I said, you know, the, the thing that we do is we look at success and we try to extrapolate all these yes. lessons. <laughs> and so, what we forget yes. is that there is one critical variable yes. that makes the difference. Yes. And that is you. Yes. That's the variable. 100%. And that somehow that gets left out of all of these conversations. hundred percent. And I mean, that's what I write about in happiness project and happier at home and also better than before, which is like my happiness project is not your happiness project. Yeah. Like for you, music might be really important or travel might be really important. Um, you know, maybe you need a ton of solitude, like that, that your happiness project would have to be for you. Same thing with habits. Like Maybe you and I agree on that we want to have a certain outcome, but how we would set up our lives to get it could be completely different. And so it's instructive to hear what works for other people. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, you're, you're 100% correct. The first thing, the first question is always, you know, what is true for me? 
Um, and, and yet it's so easy to overlook. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely true. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll get even deeper into this idea of habits and happiness. Uh- this is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Here's another question I want to ask you uh, about uh, sort of external validation and the people in our lives. And you had the most important people in your life give you sort of a blessing. And there's two things that I feel like happen in that moment. And you know, correct me if I'm interpreting the wrong way, but you know, I mean, up until that point, your identity was I'm a lawyer. I'm like this total badass who went to Yale Law School. And so suddenly there's a sort of radical shift of identity that happens. So I'm curious about that. Like, you know, how do you, how do you deal with that? And then of course, if we don't have people in our lives, like the most important people in our lives saying yes, because 
in a lot of you know lives, the most important people in our lives are the ones who warn us of all the things that could go <laughs> yeah. wrong and tell yeah. us, you know, it, the, yeah. it, it's what I, I basically say, you know what, the most important people in our lives sometimes are the ones that keep yeah. us from sta- standing yeah. on the shore instead of grabbing a surfboard and getting in the water. Oh, 100%. I mean, um, sometimes out of the deepest love, you know, people want to protect us from failure. They don't want us to get our feelings hurt. Um, they want us to be safe. Um, but the fact is there is no safe. I mean, look at the careers of the last 10, 15 years, like the biggest careers are ones that didn't exist. And a lot of the careers that were considered the most stable and successful have like either vanished or been, you know, have toppled. Um, so if you think that you can tell your child how to be safe, um, you're just wrong. I mean, you don't know where safety is, um, but you're right. It's the, the people around us. So what I have really come to believe, um, both in, ha- and, and, and I thought about this in a happiness context and also in the habits context, because a lot of times the people around you were like, well, I don't really want you to go for a run because then I have to take care of the kids and that's a pain in my ass. So I don't want to, you know, or like <laughs> if you, if you, if you don't eat, if you eat low carb, then you're not going to want to buy chips and cookies. And like, I like to have that in the house. So why is this fair for me? You know, like, you know, they, so they're not helpful. And what I found is that, and you mentioned the idea of identity, uh-huh. is the clearer you are about your, what, when, the more I know what is true for me um, and what matters to me, then the less it matters to me what other people think. It still matters, but it matters less um, because I have so clearly in my mind what I want. I think the real problem occurs was when we have ambivalence ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so then when other people give us negatives, instead of being like, eh, be like that. Or, you know what I mean? Or like, well, you've got a point, but I'm going to like, you know, do things my way. You're kind of like, oh, maybe you're right. You get all, you get, or, or, or having a concern for them. Like, well, I can't disappoint them. I can't worry them. I can't inconvenience them. Um, now, and sometimes, and sometimes you have to take that into account. Like, let's say you want to quit a very solid job and your spouse is like, I don't feel comfortable. We have three kids. Like, we got to have a steady income somewhere. Like, that's a legitimate concern. Like, you can talk about, well, that's a legitimate concern. Um, but sometimes it's just sort of very general things like, oh, there's no future and blah, blah. I, I got a very poignant email from a girl. I mean, I think she was like 22 or something. So she seems like a girl to me, you know, a young woman. And uh, I guess she was been more like 23, 24. So she had gone to college and she said that what she was, she loved pop culture. She'd always been obsessed with pop culture and she made these giant notebooks where she like kept all these like, uh, you know, articles and charts and all this stuff about different things about pop culture. And then, and then after college, she got this very cool internship at, um, an entertainment magazine. I guess this is when magazines were still big, but you know, so she got this internship that was really like right on point with what her interests were. But her parents said, oh my gosh, you know, the entertainment culture like that, there's no, like, there's no steady jobs there. So for some reason, their idea of what you should do as a steady job was that you should go to graduate school in psychology, which seems like an, like not the, <laughs> not the most obvious default. But anyway, they encouraged her to do that. And she's like, oh, you know, and it was really interesting. I got a lot out of it. But, you know, it's several years later and I still feel like I'm really more interested in entertainment. And so what do you advise? And I was like, okay, so what your parents did was, they derailed you from a really cool opportunity that came to you at the right moment, which is right after college when like you're young and scrappy and everybody expects you to get an internship. You go to graduate school where best case scenario, you have no debt, but maybe you have tons of debt. Um, you're three years or however many years older, older you are. And you're right back where you started from, which is you're like, actually really I'm interested in this like pop culture. And so 
with all the best intentions, they wasted her time, they wasted money, they wasted energy, and they kind of moved her off the natural, not to say, we can always, you can always redo it. There's no reason you have to do things in the usual sequence, but it's kind of easier if you can. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, they just sort of purposely m- moved her um, out of position. And so now she has to sort of get back into that. Um, and I just thought, man, you know, but I'm sure they had the best intentions. Um, and so, but if she'd been like, you know what, this is really what I love. Ever since I was a kid, I've been totally obsessed with this. I really feel like my interest is here is something that I can, can sustain me. Let me get my feet wet. Let me get a sense of the industry and see if there's a place for me to get it, like for me to work. Like we don't know that much about it. You know, usually you don't know that much about what the possibilities are. Like people have jobs you've never heard of crazy Mm. jobs. Um, you kind of have to get into it before you see what the possibilities are. And so, you know, maybe she, if she'd been very clear, you know, maybe you guys don't think this is particularly interesting, but I'm obsessed with it. This is what I want to do. Um, maybe it would have been easier for her not to not to be swayed by them. Hmm. Okay, so there's a phrase that you have brought up over and over again in our conversation, and that is this idea of what is true for you. Yes. And, you know, when I heard you tell that story, my mind went to this notion that, you know what, what's true for me now was so different than what it was when I first got out of college. I honestly don't know that I knew what was true for me mm, when yeah. I was that young. Yep. And because of that, I made a lot of choices out of alignment with my values. And I guess the, 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 the question that raises, how do you figure out what's true for you? I mean, I think, I think that's the key question, and I think that we spend our whole lifetime mm. trying to understand that. I, I think it's not an easy thing to figure out at all. I think it's painful. It's like more painful than buying a bikini, you know, trying it <laughs> on the store. It, it, it's painful, and there, a lot of times it's, 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 you don't like what you see. I mean, I think part of the problem with knowing yourself is that you have to admit to yourself all the things that you're not. You know, like I had to admit to myself, you know, I'm just not that into music, like at all. I mean, I get that other people like it and I see the social value of it and I wish I liked it because obviously so many people get so much pleasure from it, uh-huh. but I have to let go of the fantasy that if I only read enough books about music, which is my, my plan, um, that I would love it because I don't, it's just not, it's not, and I feel sad that I, there's something, this is this part of my nature that's not developed. So that's sort of sad. Um, and then sometimes like you, you, you wish you were different, you know, you wish you wanted a more traditional path or a less traditional path, um, or other people wish you were different. You know, they want you to, you know, what you often see, it's funny, like people who feel like their choices are really (sighs) difficult or out of alignment with society. A lot of times you're like, no, it's just your family. It's just the people around you. Like everybody in your family is a doctor and you don't want to be a doctor. It's like, oh my gosh, well, how is that? Or if everybody in your family is in business and you want to do something where you don't make a lot of money, they're like, that's crazy. Like who would ever want to have a job like that? But then with a different family, they would be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're going into business. Like, are you going to sell your soul? You know what I mean? So a lot of it's like the people around you are telling you that something about you isn't right. Um, And so I think you're exactly right that it takes wisdom and experience and age and being exposed to other people's, a lot of people's values where you begin to see like, well, this is what's true for me. And this is what I have to let go of my fantasy self. And I have to face the fact that other people might, I might not be what other people or I, I myself wish I were. Hmm. Um, but there are questions you can ask too. I'm always looking for like, how do people get an indirect look at themselves? Cause it's so hard to look at ourselves directly. So one question is whom do you envy? Because when you envy somebody, it shows you a lot about yourself. 
Another thing is, what did you do for fun when you were 10 years old? Because what you did for fun when you were 10 years old, you would probably enjoy now as an adult, whether it's something for fun or it's something for career. Hmm. Um, another one is, you know, to say to yourself, if I had a perfect day, what would I do? Because a lot of times people will say to me like, oh, my perfect day would be XYZ. I'm like, that's totally attainable. That's not like Fantasy Island. Like you could do, you could go kayaking on a lake that's an hour from your house. Like you could do that. Like, why don't you do that? And then they're like, why don't I do that? I could do that. I will do that, you know? Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, I, I love this. This I, I love conversations like this because they, they kind of take us in so many different directions. Uh, one of the, the, the other things you mentioned earlier was this notion of values, interest, and temperament. Yep. And I'm curious, you know, how we uncover those in our own lives and express that through our work, uh, through our habits, and, and sort of build a foundation for happiness, which I realize is a ridiculously big and convoluted question. I mean, I think, again, it's this idea of self-knowledge. And it's funny because it used to be when people would be like, well, what are your values? It's kind of like a company. And they're like, what are your company values? And like, every company, like, doesn't every company have like, like honesty, excellence, integrity? You know, you're like, doesn't everybody have the same? I mean, how different can they be? But then with people, you're like, oh, it's really different. I mean, like some people, it's like the environment is super important to them. And some people are like, ah, well, you know, it's not so important to me. Or, you know, some people... Um, adventure is really important. Other people are not adventurous. Um, you know, I mean, so there's all different ways where when you really start to drill down, you might think that, oh, basically everybody is the same. But then the more you push at it, the more you realize that people really are, in most ways, we're very much alike, but the differences are very important. And that's what's really important to try to see, like, what, where's the nuance? Like, what are the little things about me? Um, you know, some people, for some people, solitude is it restorative solitude is a huge value. Um, other people, they don't need as much solitude. So that's not as important, you know? And so, um, they're all different ways that these things, that these things come out. And I think it's, it is very difficult. Um, you know, it, it does take a long time, um, for these things to emerge clearly. So this is a question that I've asked a lot of people, uh, and I always wonder if the answer to this question emerges because it's true for everybody or mm. because I ask it. Uh, you know, you, you, you know, we talked about this idea of, of you know finding out what's true for you, you know, potentially being incredibly painful. And I'm curious, in all of this, have there been any sort of really difficult sort of rock bottom, you know, dark night of the soul going through hell moments? No, wow. I would say not. Okay. <laughs> no. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, true. I know. I mean, by rock bottom, I mean rock bottom. Yeah. Yeah. I have not had that. Okay. <laughs> uh, so let's do this. Let, let's actually do a deeper dive into this idea of habits. Cause you know, there are a lot of people who've done work and research around habits. You know, we've had James clear here before who spends it in, you know, a good amount of what he writes about is, is habits. You know, uh, Charles Duhigg wrote the book, the power of habit. So I'm sure you're familiar with all of this work given the research you've done. So I'm curious, you know, what your work revealed, you know, we talked a little bit about it at the beginning, but what else did it reveal that wasn't conventional wisdom and how, you know, as individuals, can we apply some of these things to our lives? Well, again, I mean, I think the big thing, I, I mean, I have to say when I was getting into it, you know, I was doing all my research, reading all those books, the people that you say and a million others, you know, I kept thinking it was kind of like the emperor's new clothes because I kept saying to myself, you know, is it possible that I'm the only one who's noticed that everybody's not the same? Am I, is it, 
is it conceivable that nobody else has noticed that some people are philosophically opposed to habits, that it's not even that they don't, they can't make them. It's that they don't believe that they're worthwhile or valuable. Um, you know, why is it like, and then there are questions that nobody seems to bother with. Like, why is it, you can kind of see why a person can't form a habit of something they don't really want to do, but why is it so often that people can't have a habit of something they love to do? Like just, they just, they will say like, I love, love, love to do this. Then why can't they do that? Why do all successful dieters gain the weight back? I mean, practically all diets like end in, you know, weight gain practically. Um, why is it, you know, anyway, there was just like a million things where I felt like, how is it that no one's talking about this? Um, and so really I very much focused on the differences among people and how those differences would affect their ability, their, the way in which they could successfully change their habit. And what I found is that there are 21 strategies for habit change. And I really had, I expected to find like five, I have to say, when I started going through, um, and I really did not want to get over nine. You know, we all know that, not that thing, like, what is it? Seven plus or minus two, um, uh. for, for memory. Um, <laughs> and I was like, once I started getting past like 15, I'm like, this is not good, but I, what was I going to do? I mean, these are the actual strategies that, that people can use to change their habits. It, I felt like it wasn't a quite, it was, it was like, it, it wasn't something that I could, I could, I could tinker with. I was actually just cataloging everything that I could find. And often what I would find is that in a, in a, in a, in a, in a scholarly article, say they would focus on one thing and be like, Oh, well, this is the key to habits. And it would be true as far as it went, but it would be very limited in that there were, well, there's all these other things that works. Plus a lot of times with habits, something will work very well for some people and the opposite will work for other people. And they would never say that. They would just be like, oh, this works with these people. And then you're like, but what about the people it didn't work with? And it's like, oh, well, you know, nothing works with everybody. It's like, okay, well, what's going on there? Um, for instance, um, in our culture right now, um, a thing that you often hear, it, it, except in the, in, the, uh, in the context of liquor and uh, smoking, you hear that you should give it up altogether, whether or not you believe that's true. That's like the conventional wisdom. Um, but everything else in moderation, right? This is the thing that we're told. Be moderate. Give yourself a cheat day. Uh, you'll fall off the wagon if you're too severe with yourself. Healthiness incorporates a little bit of everything. We should learn to manage ourselves. You know, just have one bite, that kind of thing. What I found is that actually there are abstainers and moderators when it comes to dealing with a strong temptation. And abstainers are people like me. We do better when we have none. If we, ha we can have none or we can have all, but we can't have a little bit. But it's not hard for us to have none. Moderators get kind of panicky and rebellious if they have none. They need to have it a little bit. They need to have it sometimes. These are the people who keep the bar of fine chocolate in their drawer. And then every day they have one square of fine chocolate. That would not work for me. Like I'd be eating that whole – I mean I would eat that whole candy bar <laughs> that day if not that hour. It would just haunt me until it was gone. So it's not that one way is right and one way is wrong. It's just that people have different approaches for handling how to handle a strong temptation. Obviously, this has a lot of implications for like their eating habits. Like, how are you going to think about having that bar of chocolate? How are you going to think about having that ice cream? Now, what you find is that most nutritionists are moderators. And they will consistently give advice like have a cheat day, have one bite, have one square. A little bit of dark chocolate will satisfy your satisfy your taste for something sweet. It's like, yeah, unless you're an abstainer, in which case that's just going to unleash in you this desire to eat the whole box. It's easier to have none. And people, and as an abstainer, moderators are constantly telling me that I'm wrong. They say you're too rigid. It's not healthy. Um, I mean, I abstain from a lot. You would not believe what I abstain from. You know, I'm really hardcore. I don't eat carbs. 
I mean, for me, eating almonds is like as high carb as I get. So I don't eat any sugar, any flour, any rice, any starchy vegetables. I don't basically don't eat fruit. Like I really eat a very low carb diet. And most and most people would that would not work for them. Know yourself. This really works well for me. I love it. Um, but moderators, they get very uncomfortable with something like that when I tell them because they're like, that's just not healthy. And it's not psychologically healthy. It's not a, it's not a healthy habit of eating. Like it's totally healthy for me because for me, this is freeing and energizing. I don't have to make decisions. I don't have to use willpower. I really believe in eating this way. I do it all the time. I don't do anything different on my birthday or on Sunday or if if I'm on vacation, like I'm just over, I'm just done with that noise and I love it. Um, it's what works for me. It's not what would work for everybody. But I think a lot of times um, the advice that we see or the research that we see is very much like um, what works. I mean, I had a, I had a, I'm not even going to say who it was, but a, a research, a very eminent research scientist said, oh, I got a grant to study what are the best habits. And I was like, what do you mean what are the best habits? Because, you know, what are the best habits for people to have? I was like, that is such a nonsensical question. <laughs> Like, that's like saying, what's the best height? Let's find out what's the best height for a person. I think the best height is 5'7". Well, do you want to be on a basketball team? Do you want to be a jockey? Do you want to, I mean, I, I mean, it's just like, who knows? There's no, how can you say? It just depends. It depends on what you want. It depends on the kind of person you are. Um, and so I think with habits, what I really try to stress and what I really try to emphasize is that there's a huge ring. There are these 21 strategies we can use. Some work for some people. Some don't work for others. Some are only available to us at certain times. They're not available to us at all times. Some happen to us. They're not something that we can control necessarily. Some are very familiar and powerful and, and ubiquitous, like monitoring or accountability or scheduling. Everybody knows about them. They might not use them. They don't work for everybody, but everybody knows about them. And then there are others that people don't, haven't really thought about, like abstaining and moderating, which for a lot of people is, is they haven't really thought about that. So I really try to show the, how, how you have to really think about yourself, um, what's true for you, back to the, what we were talking about, and then also the range of possibility because there's tons of things. I think a lot of people get discouraged because they've tried one or two things and it hasn't worked, but they haven't set themselves up for success and they haven't used every they haven't used every tool in the toolbox. And I'm like, I think I think you could have success if you maybe did it went about it in a different way. Um, so that's what I try to convey. Hmm. So the question that raises for me is, is what have been the the sort of tangible. Uh, results that you've seen in people's lives from your readers and, and things that you've learned as a byproduct of people, you know, taking this sort of a framework that's not based on sort of the one size fits all solution. Um, well, I would say a lot of people lose weight. Um, they seem very inspired to email me. I think there's like a, <laughs> um, a lot of people, a lot of, I was talking about the four tendencies framework, a lot of obligers, the idea that they need external accountability for them is totally exciting and freeing that now they know what to do. So I hear from a lot of obligers, uh, telling me what they've been able to do now that they've used external accountability or their clever mechanisms for it. They're so hilarious. One of my favorites is a woman who wanted to get up earlier. Uh, and how do you create, and she lived by herself. So how do you create external accountability for that? So she used Hootsuite and made a very embarrassing Facebook post that posts automatically every day at 8 15 AM, unless she gets up early and, and disables it. <laughs> Isn't that smart? So there's yeah, like a smart. million things that people do um, to give themselves that outer kind of. So I hear a lot about that. Um, I hear a lot from people who um, have gotten back in touch with something that uh, that they loved that they for some reason weren't able to keep up with. You know that they're like, oh, 
Um, I realized, you know, I should join the soccer. I should join, you know, like a women's soccer team. And I did. And it's great. I just got an email like about that today. Um, a lot of people have less conflict, too, because when you understand how other people are different from you, then you just have more forbearance. Um, it's, it's funny because I have this podcast with my sister now called Happier with Gretchen Rubin, and, which is tons of fun. Um, and we talk a lot about these ideas on the podcast. And so then that's a whole other group of people that, I, that I'm engaged with, and I hear how they're responding to these ideas. Um, so that's been interesting, too, because I think, you know, when you hear people chatting about it, it also brings out different aspects of it um, than if you read about it in a book. So that's been very interesting to see um, what people kind of pick up on of the things that we suggest. Mm. So as a writer and, and as a creator, I mean, what is your sort of daily ritual or what, do you, what, are, your, what are your habits like? Well, we just got a puppy last <laughs> week, an 11-week-old puppy. So I always got up at 6 and did like email and social media and stuff um, from six to seven, which is when I wake up my daughters to get everybody ready for school. And by the way, again, this is, the conventional wisdom is like, that's totally wrong. I'm a morning person, so I'm at my most productive and creative early in the day, uh-huh. uh, in the first part of the day, which is absolutely true. She was, I, for a long time, I was like, it's not right that I spend this first precious hour doing like these like tiny tasks. But what I realized is I can't settle down to actually write anything real until I feel like I've kind of gone through my inbox and seen what's there and kind of cleared the decks. So I'm like, you know, I see why that, that is good advice for a lot of people. It doesn't work for me because it doesn't suit my frame of mind. So then I let go of that. Um, but now we have a puppy and he's only 11 weeks old. So I get up at five 30. Um, so that poor little guy um, can go outside. We live in New York city, so he needs somebody to take him down in the elevator. Um, so I do that. And then I get my daughters off to school and then, um, what I every all my days are different, which is too bad. I wish I were like a uh, like a monk who had the exact <laughs> same um, schedule every day. That I would love that as an upholder. Um, but every day is different for me because I'll have meetings, or I'll have to record my podcast, or I'll have to have a conference call, or I have to meet somebody, or whatever. Um, but w- when I'm writing a book, uh, doing original writing, which is to me the ho- the highest value work. I try to have three hours a day when I can do it. And then everything else is like, I write a blog post or I, you know, I'm on the phone with my sister or I'm answering emails or I'm scheduling a talk or something like that. Um, three hours doesn't sound like that a lot unless you're like a writer in which you're like, oh my gosh, that's a lot of writing. Um, there's a little library right near my house and I will often go there because when I'm in my off my home office, I have three monitors. I'm like, you know, it's hard, it's harder for me to focus. And so I use just this tiny one block commute to be, and I've always loved working in libraries. I've always been attracted to libraries my whole life. So I love just, I just sit, there's a little table squirreled away in the stacks it, near the P in uh, fiction. I'm in there the, in the L and P authors. Um, I look at their spines as I gaze over my laptop and try to think about what to write. Um, and then, and, and so then everything else has to sort of fit in. But, you know, I, as an upholder, it's not hard for me to get myself to execute, particularly. So that isn't something that I have to struggle with. And one of the things I really learned is that I'm really lucky. You know, for most people, they need, they need to think through structure more and accountability and um, monitoring and things like that. They can't just be like, oh, yeah, I'll get that done by October 2nd. Mm-hmm. Um, that is not hard for me. Other things are hard. That is not hard. 
It's interesting because uh, you're right. I mean, it, it's funny, right? We, we, we talk about conventional wisdom and I was listening to you say, like, you get on social media first thing in the morning. I'm like, I was horrified by that because the yep. first thing I do every morning is write a thousand words. If I get on social media, I'll be hosed. Like that pinging around just destroys me creatively. Yeah. See? And so you know yourself and you have the habit that supports you. For me, I need to feel like I've kind of, I've like sort of surveyed the landscape and then I can, then I can be like, okay, I'm, I know what's going on there and now I'm going to turn my attention to other things. Yeah. So there really, there's really very little conventional wisdom. I mean, one of the few things that works for everybody is to get enough sleep and Mm -hmm. I zealously guard my sleep. And if you are a creative person, like your brain is the most valuable thing you have. And so getting enough sleep is one of the few iron laws of habit formation, I would say, though you might go to sleep at nine or you might go to sleep at three. Um, yeah, but you need to get enough sleep. Oh, yeah. I, I don't think there's one person who hasn't emphasized the importance of that on this podcast. I mean, what yeah. I, you know, all the research I've done, sleep deprivation aggravates oh. depression. It oh, aggravates yeah. everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just the worst. It does a lot of bad things to you. Hmm. Well, this has been awesome. I mean, it's been such a, a sort of, uh, you know, dive into unconventional wisdom about uh, <laughs> happiness and habits. In fact, I think that's what I'm going to title the interview. Uh, which, you know, it, like I said, now I kind of want to dive into the book and see, you know, what have I been applying a one size fits all formula to in my oh, life? Yeah. Well, I can't wait to hear what, what answers you come up with, if any, that would be fascinating. So because you've have, thought a lot about this yourself. Oh yeah. Yeah, of course. I mean, well, think about all the people that I get to talk to. So, uh, so I have one last question, which is how we close all our interviews at, uh, the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? What a good question. You know, I guess it's voice. And what it what is voice? Like that is that is that is the question. Um I'm obsessed with like word choice as voice. Like I was just reading Flannery O'Connor because she switches between like colloquial and formal so beautifully and with so much effect and I was just trying to understand how that worked. Or George Orwell with this perfection of word choice that is just so striking and so satisfying. So that's their voice. Um, and one thing that I I remind myself often, because if you, especially if you're out there, um, like on the internet, um, that a strong voice repels as well as attracts. And if you're going to be unmistakable, probably not everyone is going to like it. <laughs> but if you try to make yourself acceptable to everyone, you're not going to be unmistakable. You're going to be generic. You know, you're going to be safe. You're going to be bland. Um, and I think to be unmistakable, you you sort of have to be willing to accept the fact that it's not going to be to everybody's taste. Hmm. You might have just given me the introductory quote for this next okay. section of my book. Oh, good. You get the bane of your existence chapter? Yeah. I t- oh, yeah. <laughs> I want to see that chapter with that the bane of my existence chapter. Like, yeah, that, like I'm like, I'm going to read that chapter first. <laughs> it was the bane of his existence. Ah, I'm interested in that. Uh, <laughs> well, like I said, this has been fabulous, and uh, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and share your well, story you. and uh, your insights with our listeners. Oh, thank you. And uh, for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.